Please turn with me in your Bibles to Joel chapter 3. We'll be looking at that entire chapter, Joel chapter 3. I'll make a comment again on the bulletin. At the very beginning, in the instrumental prelude, <clears throat> uh, James Ryan and the strings led us in my favorite hymn, My Song is Love Unknown. It's in our hymnal, 119 and 120, two different tunes. The best one is 119, just my unbiased opinions. Hymn number 119, My Song is Love Unknown. I encourage you to look at that this afternoon. It's a wonderful story. It tells the whole story of Jesus' life, but in a very, very touching and moving way. My song is love unknown, my Savior's love to me. Well, we are studying Joel chapter 3. We're studying through Joel and these minor prophets, and we've been on quite a journey so far. We learned that this little agrarian community uh, was very much like ours, a group of people who worked very hard. They were very successful. They had uh, what they needed in terms of food, shelter, and clothing, as, as Ms. Carroll reminded us this morning. They, uh, they were uh, available. They were, uh, they were involved in their, in their culture, in their politics. They went to church every week, and they, their, their pastors told them every week how special they were. They were very normal people, which means that they were very ungrateful people. They took for granted what they had been given. They were hard workers. They were religious. They were involved in their society, and yet they were focused on themselves. Their world rotated, circled around themselves. The Lord was not first in their lives. They gave Him lip service, but He was not their compelling focus. They did not see themselves on mission. They did not see that everything that had been entrusted to them was to be turned, that every blessing was to be turned into a blessing for others. They didn't cherish or steward the place they had been given. They were only looking out for themselves. And God loved them. He loved them so much that He sent a locust plague to destroy everything they had, to rescue them from their materialism. He loved them so crazily that He saw that if He did not intervene, that they would continue on in this dehumanized state of ingratitude. He loved them too much to leave them there. God demonstrates FOMO, the fear of missing out, but not his own fear of missing out, his fear of you and me missing out on the fullness of life he intends us to live as we live as those who are, who are consumed with him first in our lives and set on mission in response to that grace. 
That's what we find in Joel again and again. And here now that he has set them free, now that he has turned their hearts back, their pastors went to the altar and pled for them. They repented. They returned to worship. And he is beginning to put them back together. And he is setting them on mission. And this is what we find will be the nature of their mission in verses 1 to 21 of Joel chapter 3. Behold, in those days and at that time, When I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you're paying me back, I'll return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you've taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I'll stir them from the place to which you have sold them, and I'll return your payment on your own head. I'll sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion. My holy mountain in Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, Edom, a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. O Lord, open our eyes. Behold, in this very old passage of Scripture, new and fresh and encouraging truths for your people and words of salvation 
for those who have yet to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We pray it in Jesus' name. God's people said together, amen. There's a story that comes out of the English Civil War, middle part of the 17th century. Oliver Cromwell, the Puritan, was leading in that uh, war, the the Puritans or the parliamentarians against the royalists, against the despotic government that was oppressing them. And and, uh, the the, uh, parliamentary forces were accustomed to going into uh, different places of worship, the grand cathedrals, and commandeering them for the cause. And uh, there is a story, maybe it's a fable, but there's a story of Cromwell and his men going into one of those cathedrals, and there was a, they, were in, they were in search of metal everywhere. They needed lots of metal, metal for armament, metal for projectiles. And they were looking for that metal, and there stood in the corner one of the saints, one of the statues for one of the saints, cast in bronze. And the, one of the soldiers said to Cromwell, what should we do with the saint in the corner? And Cromwell said, melt him down. No saint should be standing in a corner. Melt him down. No saint should be standing in a corner. The falling of the Spirit on the church of Jesus Christ as it was prophesied in Joel chapter 2 that we studied last week. The, The Spirit that was present in the Old Testament but especially manifested in the New Testament leaves no excuse, as we learned last week, for any Christian to, to withdraw, for any Christian to, to succumb to cowardice, to succumb to disobedience. The Holy Spirit falling on us and empowering us, he says, as, as little boys and little girls, old men, young men, young women, The Holy Spirit falling with power on every member of the church of Jesus Christ should leave no saint in a corner. What corner might you be living in today? Are you living in a corner because you feel like that's the safest place to be? You like it here. It's secure. You like the way things are, and you just want everybody else to leave things alone and, and, and out there to behave themselves and leave your little corner alone. Are you in a corner because you're pouting? God hasn't given you what you want. Somebody has offended you, so you're feeling self-pitiful, and you're in the corner sucking your thumb. Are you in a corner because you like to lurk in the shadows and you, you like to, to, you're angry at the world, you're, you're angry at God, and so you, from there, you lash out with your friends or try to seek division or, or try to bring it, other people down? Are you in the corner hoping that God won't notice you because you are addicted to your sin? What, there could be a thousand reasons for why you or I get in our corner at times. There is one solution. It's a solution I hope you hear every week, and that solution is the love of God in Jesus Christ. 
It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ manifested, given to us as a gift from God the Father. Whether you are disobedient, whether you're wicked, whether you are angry, whether you are shamed, whether you're doubtful, no matter what it is, it is the grace of God in Jesus Christ who speaks into your corner and says, don't continue there. Come out and live. The Holy Spirit poured out on the church and every Christian makes it impossible for us to stay in a corner. But just as God is prone to do, he doesn't give us simple answers. He wants to give us thorough answers in order to move us with courage and obedience into the heart of his will, into the action, into doing his mission. So as we said, his His challenge to us to get out of the corner, be strong and courageous, get involved in the mission, always comes with that promise, I am with you. And the witness of God is manifested in our passage in three ways. There are three ways that the witness, the presence of God brings us particular comfort and encouragement and emboldens us to get out of our corner and into the mission, joining God in His mission. It is vigilance, and it is vindication, and it is victory. I probably spend the most time on vigilance, these first eight verses, because I want you to see here the very, very tender and aggressive love of God for His people and the way it should be imitated among us. How do we know? How can we, how can we step into the challenge, step into and join God in the mission? It is by knowing that He is vigilant, that He's not only with us, but He is looking very carefully after us. He's paying very intimate attention to us. He is, as Jesus said, the good shepherd. I know my sheep. I know their names. They know my voice. I watch them. I care for them, even in the valley of the shadow. How do we know that he's that kind of vigilant shepherd in these first eight verses? We see it in several ways. One is he takes note that they are being scattered. See that in verse two? They are being scattered. God is angry at what the enemies of his people are doing to them. Now, God has been disappointed with his people. He has disciplined them, but he loves them. And, and, and the proof of his love is that he disciplines them. But he gets, he's very protective of them too. So that when other people, when he harms, he only harms in order to heal. But other groups, other forces, when they seek to harm God's people, they're not trying to heal. They're trying to hurt his people. They're trying to interrupt his cause. And God gets angry and he gets protective. And he says, look at what they're doing to my people. They try to invade my land and they scattered my people. They try to scatter my people among the nations. Why is God so upset when his people get scattered? Because that was the devil's strategy. From the beginning of, of creation, the devil was going to try to, to disrupt God's plan of bringing a, a Savior through the people 
of God through the, through the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so from the beginning, we see the devil trying to war against that line through which the Messiah would come. And their primary strategy was to scatter people. It was to uproot the Jews from their land and to, to scatter them among the nations and force them to or try to force them to assimilate into the culture so that they would no longer be that unified line through which God would work his redemptive purposes so that they could destroy their religion in their faith in the one true and merciful God. But it's never worked. God has, on the contrary, turned that on its head. So that when Joseph is taken as a slave to Egypt, what happens? He, he becomes second in command. He saves his people from extinction. What happens when Esther is taken and, her, and, and into the king's palace and, uh, and, and they, they tried to discourage the people of God. They even tried to, to wipe them out. Esther uses her influence to save the people of God. The kingdom goes forward. And, and then what of the story of Daniel and his four friends taken as captive into Babylon and yet used by God to turn that nation upside down? Nehemiah used to raise money in favor for the rebuilding of the temple so no matter how people, how evil forces try to disrupt God's kingdom work by scattering his people, it always, he turns it on its head. He continues by his mercy to continue to, to save his people and to move forward his kingdom. Why is, but, but, but why is that the strategy? Because uprooting somebody Uprooting somebody is one of the most traumatic experiences a human being can have. Simone Weil, the, 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 uh, the famous author who, who survived the Holocaust, wrote in one place, to be rooted is perhaps the most important and least recognized need in the human soul. Every human soul needs to be rooted needs to have a place. And so if the, the devil can uproot us, he, he can make us vulnerable. We know by our voluntary uprooting, when we have to move to another place, we can be most vulnerable. So what is our calling, just from a human perspective? What is our calling as, uh, to, to war against the devil's strategy of uprootedness? Our calling must be to root ourselves where we are. It is to love the place where we are. This is the impulse of God's people throughout history, that no matter how much the devil has tried to uproot us and dilute our influence, Christians have responded when they're faithfully living in response to His grace by sinking their roots deeply where they are, not in a materialistic way, but loving the place they where they live. Shortly before I moved to Memphis, before I knew I was moving to, moving to Memphis, I read a book. It's not a Christian book per se, written by Melanie, Melody Warnick, uh, which is uh, titled, This is Where You Belong. This is Where You Belong, The Art and Science of, of Loving the Place You Live. This is Where You Belong. 
And she tells about leaving Austin and going to Blacksburg, Virginia because of her husband's academic job. And she said uh, the only good thing that they found upon moving to Blacksburg was they liked his job, but they didn't like anything else. They didn't like their neighborhood. Their neighbors weren't res- uh, receiving of them. They didn't like the shops. It wasn't as hip as Austin and on and on and on. They found all kinds of ways to dislike Blacksburg. But she had been writing on loving the place where you live and sinking your roots deep. And, and so she thought, well, maybe I should experiment. Maybe I can, by acting like I love the place where I am, I can actually fall in love with the place where I am. And that's what she did. She decided to love her neighbors, even the ones who were reluctant to open their doors. She threw a block party for them. She found out what their needs were. She, she crowdsourced and helped a, a new bookstore opening. She loved the place where she was. She said she even began to like them. And by becoming rooted, by intentionally loving, she really did become loving toward them. Now, that's a, that's a common grace insight but it should characterize the way we approach our city. It's what we're trying to do in parishes, for instance, to say, here is where God has placed you in His providence, so let's intentionally love that place and sink our roots there and love that place even before it loves us back, even when it is unlovable, even uh, loving a place as it is, not waiting for it to become lovable before we love, but loving this place As Jeremiah told the people of God to do, love and pray for Babylon. Pray for its peace. Pray for its prosperity. Babylon? Are you kidding, Jeremiah? This is the place that holds us in bondage. Yes, love it and pray for God's best for it. And watch what happens. Watch what happens when those who are ultimately rooted in the kingdom of heaven love a place that doesn't love them in return, and watch what that love can do to transform an area. We turn the devil's strategy on its head as he is constantly trying to uproot us and scatter us. No, we sink our, we are secure in heaven so we can sink our roots right here in Memphis or where we're living and say, I will love you in the name of Jesus Christ and and to do so in such a way that I can earn a right to show you how you can be rooted forever in a kingdom that will never fail. God's passion is also demonstrated for us, His vigilance in caring about our divisions. You see in verse 2, I'll gather all the nations, bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. By the way, that's not King Jehoshaphat, that's just literally Yahweh judges, the place where Yahweh, a reference to the end times. I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people, my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. Now, God, if if you ever go to Israel, you can take a virtual tour of Israel and see this very thing. You can stand on one high spot or you can sit in the, or on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and you turn 360 degrees and you can observe almost the entire history of redemption where, where you, you can observe the place where the, almost the entire history of redemption occurred. In roughly a 35, 50-mile radius, God accomplished most of His work of redemption in that sliver of land. That was His arena. 
He did that uh, in order to demonstrate to his people then and in subsequent generations that heaven comes to earth and makes a difference. But God's work is not contained there. It was just a, it was a model. It was a, it was a teaching tool to show us what can happen when we say your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So consequently, throughout the ages, people have attacked that land and tried to, to divide it up. They've tried to, to cut it in pieces and keep God from doing his work of redemption, of bringing Abraham into the promised land, of keeping his people there in the promised land, not carrying them off, of, of allowing Jesus to come there to be born, not to be killed, to succeed in living his life, to make his way to the cross make his way to the tomb, rise, all in that place. God is protective of the unity of his land, which supports the work of his people. Now, how's that applied today? Because the church is the successor of that strategy. As Israel was the embassy of heaven, This is the outpost of heaven right there in Israel. So now with the giving of the gospel, the local church is the embassy of heaven. And it's multiplied all over the world. Every place where the church of Jesus Christ is gathered, that is an outpost of heaven. And and by our unity, even in diversity, our unity, we are demonstrating the unifying saving power of the gospel to make of many people one. And so God gets very upset, not only when people tried to divide that land, but when they tried to divide the church, when they tried to divide the local church. God gets very angry when churches split He gets very angry when dissensions and divisions are allowed to take root in a church and that unity is broken. He saves some of his strongest words for those occasions, for those people who try to do such things. Romans chapter 16, verse 17, he says, keep away from people who try to make divisions. 1 Corinthians 11, 18 and 19 There are factions among you so that those who are approved of God might be displayed. What does he mean by that? It's later explained in 1 John chapter 2, 19. They went out from us to prove that they never were of us. Jude 19. Those who cause divisions do not have the Spirit. And Titus 3, 10 rebuke a divisive person twice and then have nothing to do with him. Now, are there times when we stand for the pure preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the only way of salvation? Yes, we do. But you know, in the history of Christianity, when people stand for it that way, when people stand for the true preaching of the gospel, they usually don't have to go out and form a separate church. They get kicked out of the false church. 
We pray against the devil getting a foothold in any place, any place of worship. It demands our greatest vigilance as pastor and elders and people of asking, is this conversation or is this action bringing unity to the body of Christ? Or is it splitting? Is it introducing dissension? Is it introducing division? And then we smell it when we hear it, when we experience it. We must be vigilant as our Savior is to say, that's not appropriate. Call the person to repentance and say, don't let the devil get a foothold. God is vigilant in protecting the unity of his people, his church. And then God is vigilant against dehumanizing actions, verse 3. <clears throat> dehumanizing actions, here is the unspeakable, the description of unspeakable crimes against humanity, slaveholding and, and trafficking. Do you know that in our day, today, there are more women and boys and girls held in bondage against their wills to do unspeakable things than there ever were in the height of chattel slavery in the British Empire. It is a horrible malady on humanity. And as Christians, we follow the impulse of Christians in the past of standing against such things, getting involved and interrupting and opposing such things, joining forces with International Justice Mission or, or locally with Restore Corps or A Way Out or Sister to Sister. We are to stand up for those who can't speak for themselves. And why? Because our vigilant Savior is upset when his image bearers are treated this way. He's upset when their fundamental need for rootedness is shaken up. He is upset when our fundamental identity as Christians in unity is disturbed. And he is upset when those who are most at risk are abused by evil forces. This is the, the impulse of Christianity. It was... It was, despite some of sinful man's best uh, efforts to obscure it, it made its way into some of our founding documents as a nation. Uh, for instance, the, the Declaration of Independence, uh, that all men are created equal, they're endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights include life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That, that, uh, that one sentence served to, uh, to undo ultimately slavery and, and undo uh, Jim Crow laws, even though those founders were, some of those founders were slave owners themselves. God, by His sovereignty, saw to it that those words were woven into our Declaration of Independence. And do you know it was even stronger at one time? Thomas Jefferson originally wrote, not that we find these truths to be self-evident, uh, but rather that these are sacred and unalienable. These are sacred and undeniable rights, sacred and undeniable rights. And then he went on to, to, to speak against the execrable evil of slavery uh, that was occurring in 
Great Britain, even in, 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 uh, um, with the king, even though he held slaves himself. Sacred and undeniable rights. God is using, God is pushing forward his kingdom and accomplishing his redemptive purposes among nations and among his people, even while we try to oppose them. I want you to see that. I want you to be encouraged by God's vigilance that you must never see yourself to be helpless and just shrink away in the corner, but to realize that over and over again in redemptive history of Scripture, even in the history we can read about in our own history books, uh, even uh, though much is is, uh, evil and much wrongdoing perpetrated by people throughout the ages, God's kingdom continues to move forward through his people. Don't sit and cower and grow angry and bitter and helpless in a corner. Move out by the power of the Spirit and join God in his mission confidently, leaning in, even if you don't see immediate victories, knowing that God is gathering all of his enemies someday into this valley of Jehoshaphat, this valley of Megiddo, to bring ultimate justice. Well, there are two other points to the sermon. I promise you'll be much shorter, but I wanted to ring the changes on those two, that one especially. These are not so uncommon to us. We talk about this a lot. God will be victorious. You see it in verses 9 through 16. God will make us victorious in His kingdom powers, kingdom purposes, by using unconventional weapons. He says, verse 9, consecrate yourselves for war. Of course, he doesn't mean uh, literal uh, militant combat. He doesn't mean shedding people's blood uh, 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 literally. He's talking about that spiritual warfare that he is conducting in the church, where he says we are battling against principalities and powers with weapons that are more powerful, the weapons of prayer, the preaching of the gospel. One commentator said that David, sometimes this language disturbs us. We think it's, it, it, it encourages violence, but we understand we don't, we don't understand it properly as his spiritual description of the gospel overtaking the kingdom of the evil one and taking captive those souls for good. One commentator said David washed his feet in Saul's blood, Elijah and Ahab's blood, Hezekiah and Sennacherib's blood, without any of them participating in agency, the agency of that destruction. They didn't kill those people who were so mentioned. They participated in God's spiritual victory over them. The promises of unlimited success as well, verses 11 and 14. Listen to the air power that we have the privilege of calling down. Bring down your warriors, O Lord, in verse 11. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations. Here he's describing the angelic powers that God puts at our disposal when we pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. And finally, in verses 17 to 21, I want you to see that God's name will be vindicated. His righteousness will be vindicated. Verse 17, one commentator calls the recognition formula 
so you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Here is what we pray for often. Lord, get a name for yourself. Make a name for yourself. Not because he needs a name, not because he's narcissistic, but because he knows that when his name is known, when he is our focus, when we're consumed with his ways and praying for Christ and the beauty of his righteousness to be made known on our earth, people and cities are made beautiful. Jerusalem, verse 17, shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And not only for Jerusalem, but look at these other nations that will also experience the beauty of the gospel, Egypt and Edom. Uh, the Sabians, the Tyre and Sidon, Philistia, all of these are places from which God has rescued people for his kingdom. God conquers these nations as Dan prayed. God conquers nations with his cross by the preaching, the living out of the gospel. We have the privilege of being a part of that mission. Don't stay in the corner. Well, you say, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that God can ever use me. I'm not sure that God could ever use someone like me. I'm not sure that there's any hope for those other people out there. I think I will stay in my corner and avoid notice. I think I'll stay in my corner of self-pity my, self, my corner of self-defeat, but you can't. You say, I'm not worthy. There's no way that the Lord could possibly use me. Just one illustration of how the prophecy of Joel, that God would avenge the blood of his people by redeeming their blood. Just think about the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew. You know all of the begats in Matthew 1. This man begat this man. This man begat that one. Coming down to Joseph and Mary and Jesus. Do you remember that in that, in that genealogy are mentioned four women? Tamar. Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Tamar, someone who was assaulted by a patriarch and became the mother of unplanned twins. Rahab, the harlot. Ruth, the Moabitess, Bathsheba, one with whom David had an affair. People from the Moabites, the Hittites, the Canaanites, as well as Jews. Who were the Canaanites? Those people that were so grotesque in their idolatry that they Worse, they were a bloodthirsty people in their interactions. Who were the Hittites people who delighted to impale others on raw sticks? Moabites, those who 
who sacrifice their children to gods. And from every one of these nations, God redeemed someone who became an heir, a foremother of our Savior. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace, not just for salvation, but for mission too. Holy Spirit does not allow us to stay in our corner, but because of His vigilance and because of His victory, because of His vindication, He says, be strong and courageous. Believe me for great things and attempt great things for me. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, I thank You for a people like the Bereans who are willing to look at old, complicated portions of Scripture in order to mine them for their continued relevance. And we ask, O oh Lord, from this little-known book in which we have seen Your discipline, restoration, and then re-equipping for mission, that we would see hope for ourselves individually, even for our nation and for your work throughout all the nations. Lord Jesus, come quickly and gather to yourself all those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation that you might gain a name for yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said together.